Well, good morning, Brookside. If you have been out of the loop or maybe just behind on email the last week or so, you will want to know about all of the amazing things that have been going on just within the life of our church family this last week. So, so last Sunday we started this new teaching series. You'll be hearing about that more in just a second. But it was also our block party where we kick off a lot of the, of the ministries for the fall, things like that. It was a great, great Sunday. I think there were people hanging out here until like 2 o'clock. Last Sunday is when the last people left. There was students playing games. There was adults, families hanging out, food. It was, it was all good. And then, and then on Sunday, I was here picking up my seventh grader from Tribe, our middle school ministry at the church. And I think there was probably a million high school and middle school students around the building when I came. Maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. There was a ton of students around. And then this Sunday is Group Link where we're, where we're expanding groups and launching groups. So, so it's all really good, really exciting stuff. And then I love this teaching series that we began last week called I Want to Believe But, where what we're doing is we're tackling some of the toughest questions that people have about Christianity. You've, you've heard some of these questions. So last week, Jeff started us out by, by addressing the question, I want to believe but isn't God just an angry God? Isn't God mad all of the time? Isn't he always disappointed with me, with who I've become, with what I'm doing? Isn't God just up there in heaven sitting, waiting for me to mess up so he can vent some rage in my direction? We saw last week that that is absolutely not the right picture of God to have in the front of our minds. So Jeff showed us from the Old Testament and the New Testament that that's not who God is. God isn't just an angry God. Next week, we're looking at, at how can a good God allow suffering. So Jeff will be taking us into what I think is one of the biggest questions that keep people from not just faith in Christianity, but faith in God, period. How can a good God allow suffering? Again, one of the biggest questions people have. So, so no pressure, Jeff, if you're somewhere listening in on that. And then, and then on from there, we'll be asking, how can there be only one true religion? And why are Christians hypocrites? And this series is important because all of these are great questions to be asking. We never want to be afraid of asking these sorts of questions at Brookside. Christianity never asks us to leave our brains at the door when we choose to believe in and follow Jesus. I know this is how I'm wired. So I, I, I love that Christianity never pushes us away from study and deep thought. I love to give concentrated thought to things. And the thing about Christianity is the more we press into it, the more we study it, the more we really dig deep, the more we're encouraged to continue digging more deeply. The more we see how strong and reliable of a foundation Christianity really does give us. And so as we ask these questions over the course of the series, here's what we want to show you. We just want to show you that none of these questions, none of these really big questions have to keep people from believing in God. Instead, we believe that as people ask these questions, and then do the good work of looking into seeing how Christianity responds. What, what does the best Christian scholarship say in response to each of these? We believe that instead of these questions keeping people from God, asking these questions, doing the study to see the response, can actually lead people into belief in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Or if nothing else, they'll show you, if you're asking some of these sorts of questions here today, they'll show you that Christianity makes a ton of sense and hopefully is worth some of your deepest consideration. So let's get right into the question we're asking this morning. The question we're tackling today is, can I trust the Bible? And this question can be asked in all sorts of ways. 
Maybe you've heard it asked some of these sorts of ways. What about all the errors in the Bible, some people say? How can I trust an out-of-date book, a book that seems to condone what is wrong, a book that seems so old-fashioned and irrelevant? Or another question that's related to this idea of, can I trust the Bible? How can we even know what the biblical writers actually wrote? Haven't their writings been corrupted, hopelessly corrupted, over the course of 2,000 years? And on and on we could go. Now, I may not agree with all of the assumptions that, that are underneath the way those questions were asked, but we know that's the way the questions are being asked these days. And all of them relate to this larger question, can I trust the Bible? And what makes this question so important is that we all know that this isn't just some abstract question that we're asking. We're really asking something like, can I trust the Bible enough to follow it? Can I trust the Bible enough to base my life on it? Can I trust my life enough, or can I trust the Bible enough to follow where it leads to Jesus Christ and to trust in him? See, there's a passage in the Bible, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that shows us what's at stake when we say, can I trust the Bible? So let's go there. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So absolutely, there's something at stake in saying, can we trust the Bible? Because if we answer that with a yes, we need to let the Bible teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us. That's what following the Bible, that's what trusting the Bible means. And so we can't just sit back, kind of arms folded, leaning back a little bit, and say, can I trust the Bible? Hmm, that's an interesting question. This, this can't be an indifferent approach that we're taking here today. Because if the Bible really is trustworthy, if it really is reliable, that absolutely means something for what we base our lives off of and how we follow the Bible's lead, how we let it teach us, rebuke us, and correct us, how we let it inform and reform what we do and how we act. Now, let me say it this way. The greater our confidence in the Bible, the more we'll base our lives on the Bible. And if that statement is true, and I think it is, that means there's a whole lot riding on the first half of that statement because we'll never base our lives on something that we don't have confidence in. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. So off to my right behind me, I've got this fishbowl complete with a little plastic Nemo. And I don't know if you can see that or not, so don't worry, no fish will be harmed in this, in this exercise. Off here to my right, I've got this. Here, I've got my phone. Now, this is the actual phone. I don't know if you can see it light up a little bit. This is the actual phone that I use and that organizes my life and that costs way too much money. This is the same phone I'm hoping in just a few minutes keeps organizing my life here that I can keep using. So in just a second, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop this phone here in this fishbowl of water. Now, the logical question maybe at this point is, Tim, why would you do that? That's a question Carrie asked me multiple times leading up to this morning. First service, there was somebody that like yelled out an audible no when they heard that I was going to be doing this, completely unprompted. It was great. But so, so I'm going to drop this in here. The only reason I'm doing this is because there's this little word life proof on the back of my phone case. I trust life proof enough 
to hold, protect my phone while I do that. And so right now, while this like tear rolls down my cheek because my phone is submerged in water, I am trusting all of the research I did on LifeProof leading up to this morning. So I went to two independent Verizon stores and asked two independent Verizon associates, I'm like, so imagine I submerged a phone in water. What case would you recommend? And so they recommended LifeProof, right? I, did, uh, I, I spent time on Amazon reading the reviews. I read the warranty. I was on the website. Absolutely waterproof, leak-free. Did it light up? Oh, yep. Here's, so now Jeff is calling me on the phone. So, so it still works, right? This is the one time I can ignore Jeff's phone calls <laughs> when he calls. Let me, um, let me wipe that off just not to push my luck there for a second. But the, the only reason I took this bold, wild step of, of putting my phone in the water is because I trusted the life-proof case. I'm willing to take bold, wild steps of obedience because I really hope this case holds up. I really hope it will do what it says. Because I have confidence in life-proof, I just stuck my phone in a fishbowl of water for 30 seconds or whatever it was. The same is true with our approach to the Bible. The greater our confidence in the Bible, the more we'll take bold, wild steps of obedience in line with what it says, the more we'll base our lives on where the Bible, following the Bible, leads us. So because of how much rides on this first half of the statement, this is where I want to spend our time together this morning, or at least the, the good chunk of it. I just want to take some time and look at three reasons we can have great confidence in the Bible. See that this is a book unlike any other book. I want to build a case for why we can trust the Bible enough to base our lives on it. And so we'll look at the Bible's unity. We'll look at the reliability of its transmission and even see what does that mean. We'll look at its transforming power. And then on the other side, we'll see that this book is a book like no other book, that it deserves our best attention and that the best thing we can possibly do is to base our lives on it and follow where the Bible leads. So let's look first at the unity of the Bible. We can trust the Bible because of the unity of its message. And this unity is, the, is a big deal considering everything that goes into putting the Bible together. Just look at this list that's going to come up on the screens. The Bible, one book that's really made up of 66 smaller books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. It was written over a period of 1,500 years, which is a really long time. 40 different authors coming from different circumstances, different personalities, different professions, ranging from shepherd to religious professional to doctor and everything in between. It was written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, in three different languages. Hebrew, it's a little bit of Aramaic, and Greek. And so when we look at this list, we should be thinking, hmm, wow, that's a really diverse book. But in the midst of all of this diversity, we find it coming together into one story, into one cohesive story that lines up around a beginning where God creates, an ending where that same God makes things right. It lines up around a central character, Jesus, God's promised Messiah, 
The Old Testament starts looking forward to Jesus from the earliest pages. You can, you can study this and see all the prophecies that look ahead to him. And then the New Testament centers around Jesus. And all this diversity lines up around common themes like sin, like redemption, and renewal. And so in the face of all of this diversity across person, across personality, across time, across place, amidst all of this diversity, what's more amazing about the Bible is its unity. The consistency of its message. This shows that this book really is a book unlike any other book. This tremendous support for this book being God's word, being strong enough for us to base our lives on it. And if you think about it, this sort of unity, this sort of consistency is really important. Imagine a sports team that maybe you were on growing up, or if you're a student athlete right now, or if you've ever worked in any sort of team environment, you know how important consistency is. Because someone can be a star, they can be a star athlete, but if they never show up on time, or if they can only perform well under very controlled, rare circumstances, we know that that athlete, even though they can perform well sometimes, can't ultimately be relied upon in a game. And so 99 times out of 100, the coach is going to pick the athlete that's more reliable over the star that's so inconsistent. You see, inconsistency raises doubt, but consistency, unity, it builds trust. So we can trust the Bible because of its unity, because of the unity of its message Another reason we can trust the Bible is because of the reliability of its transmission. Now, that's a really academic phrase, but it's really important. What this means is just how was the Bible transmitted to us? How did it get from there and then, right, from the Middle East in the first century and before, how did it get to us here? Can we trust the process by which we, we've gotten this book? And this idea of the transmission of the Bible, how we got it, is, is the front line of where Bible debates are currently raging in academia, right? So, so I had three or four different people approach me. They knew the topic I was teaching on this week, and the stuff they wanted to talk about, they're like, Tim, are we going to hear about this? Tim, maybe you can bring this up in your sermon. All of it was around this idea of how we got the Bible. All of it was around is, is, is the process by which it came down to us can we trust it? Here are the way the questions often look. One, one way the question is asked is, how do we know which books of the Bible are supposed to be in the Bible and treated as sacred authoritative literature? Right? So, what, so how do we know which books are in? Second question is, what, wasn't the decision on which books make the cut, wasn't it just a political decision made in the fourth century hundreds of years after the books were supposed to have been written? Or a third way the question can sometimes look, how do we know that what the biblical writers wrote hasn't been corrupted and changed over time? And so because these questions are so big, because these questions are so relevant, because this is where the because again, this idea is, this is where the questions are being asked today, I want to take just a few minutes and look at each one. We're not going to exhaust any responses here, but I want to get my foot in the door to show you how the best Christian thinking responds to each one. So, so hang on to something, put on your thinking caps, and let's get, into, let's get into each one. So first question we looked at, how do we know which books are supposed to be in the Bible 
and treated as sacred and authoritative texts. You see, choosing the books of the Bible, it wasn't, listen to me here, it wasn't some random game of blind darts like people think it was. They think it was like, put all the books of the Bible plus some others in a hat, pick them out. Oh, I guess that's what's in our New Testament. That wasn't the way it happened. The books of the Old Testament were never really up for debate. The Jewish people, for as long as we have history, have accepted the books of our Old Testament as their authoritative, sacred literature. But what about the New Testament? The key factor in helping us land on which books are in the New Testament was, was who it was written by. You see, was, was the book written by either one of Jesus' closest followers, one of his apostles? So we get eyewitness testimony. Was it written by either an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle or not? That was the bottom line key criteria. But then there are these other books, books like the Gospel of Thomas that you may have heard about. There's this Gospel of Judas that's floating around out there. What about those? Those books were written so much later into the second century even. Or the content conflicts so clearly with what we know is Christian teaching that these other books that didn't make the cut were never, were never serious contenders for being included in the New Testament. Let's go to the next question. Wasn't the decision on which books did make the cut, wasn't it just a political decision made in the fourth century, hundreds of years after these books were supposedly written? The short answer is no, it wasn't just a political decision. It is true that there was an official decree that came out in the fourth century officially stating, here's the books in the New Testament. True story. But it wasn't like that was the first time any such list had ever been published and was circulating. You see, this, wouldn't, this fourth century declaration, this festal decree by this guy by the name of Athanasius in AD 367, where the, the, where the books were officially declared as New Testament books, that wouldn't have been new news to anyone in the Christian church leading up to that. You see, already since the second century, just decades after the writing of the New Testament, lists began circulating among the Christian church about which books should be looked to as authoritative and which books, because of content, because of other reasons, were so clearly out, were not in line with historic Christian teaching. And the thing is, those lists that were circulating in the second century looked a whole lot like the list that came out in the fourth century, which looked a whole lot like the books we have in our New Testament today. And so all of that means that from the earliest days after the birth of the church, the earliest days, all of that points to this idea that people were looking to the same books then that we're looking to today for instruction and direction. We can trust that these books weren't a political, manipulated decision. These are the same books the church has always been reading since the birth of the church. Third question. How do we know that what the biblical writers wrote hasn't been corrupted and changed over time? Hang on with me for a couple more minutes. We're almost through the thickest part of the sermon. So, so there's actually a scholarly discipline called textual criticism that helps us know with confidence that what we're reading is what the biblical writers actually wrote. So here's how textual criticism works. With many historical documents, we don't have the original manuscript of that document. It's true. We don't have like the original Gospel of Matthew. 
We don't have the original book, that, uh, book of Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to the, to the Romans, just like we don't have the original Iliad that Homer wrote. We don't have the original Gallic Wars of Caesar. But over time, copies of these original documents turn up. And so as, as more and more copies turn up, this, this, uh, these scholars that practice textual criticism can look at all these documents, compare and see where there's agreement, and then, and then acknowledge where there's disagreement, where there's doubt, where there's question. And the more copies we have, the more of a solid case they can make for what the original said. The earlier, uh, the earlier copies we have, like the, the, the closer they were to the time of writing, is how we can say, okay, okay, if it was just a couple years apart or just a few decades apart, it's a lot more likely that we know what the original said than if there were hundreds or thousands of years between the original and our closest copy. So all of that is just saying that there's this studied, intentional discipline that textual critics can use. This isn't guesswork. It's not like, well, I think or I hope it says that. These are scholars, smart dudes, smart gals, who are putting their best attention to saying, how do we know what some of these original documents actually said? So let's look at how this works on a chart that'll maybe give you a visual of some of your thinkers that way. So Plato, we've all heard of Plato, maybe read some of his stuff in high school or college or whatever. His tetralogies, some of his writings were written in the 4th and 5th centuries B.C., the time between the original and when we have the earliest copies when they're found is 1,200 years. So that's a long time. We have seven of Plato's copies of the Tetralogies to compare and contrast. To say, okay, how do we, how do we know what Plato wrote? Caesar, his writings are a little bit better. So for example, like the Gallic Wars, written in the first century BC, the, the time between the original and the first copy is 1,000 years. We've got 10 to compare to arrive at what Caesar said, again, for example, in the Gallic Wars. Homer's Iliad, we're getting better here, written in, the ninth, uh, in, an, uh, in 900 B.C., 500 years between the original and the, and the earliest copies we have. We have a whopping 643 copies, so lots of data points to compare, to say, okay, how do we know what Homer wrote? Do we trust it? The thing is, we don't really doubt any of these people that they wrote it or what they said. But then in comparison to this, look at how the New Testament stacks up. New Testament, written late first century A.D., 50 to 100 about. Earliest copies are showing up less than 70 years, just a few decades after the time of the original. And then the real takeaway is, I don't know if you can see this or not, there are close to 6,000, just a little bit under almost, just over 5,700 5, Greek manuscripts plus 10,000 Latin manuscripts and a whole lot of other quotations in church fathers and other translations. And so all of that means that without a doubt, Archaeologists agree on this. Historians agree on this. Without a doubt, the New Testament is the single most reliable historical document we have. People may disagree with what it says, but do we know what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote? Yes. With just a, a, a like, just a, with 100% accuracy, like 99.8% accuracy is where, is where it lands, I think. Some, something very close to 100%. So we know that what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote is what we're reading today. And then where there are variants, because if you listen to enough YouTube videos, you hear about all these variants that exist. All of the variants that exist across these 6,000 manuscripts or so, those variants have to do with small things. Like, do we include the article the there 
or not? Is it Jesus Christ or is it Christ Jesus? All of the variations are so minor and none of the variations touch at all on any point of Christian doctrine. And so, so the bottom line, so let's come up for air, right? Let's wade back into the shallow end of the pool. Let's take a second, exhale, right? I mean, so that was the deep part. But all of that, what I'm wanting to show you is that the contents of this book are absolutely reliable. We can have great confidence that what was written is what we're reading. Okay, so there's one more reason that we don't want to miss for why this book deserves our confidence. Because of its transforming power. This is true on a large cultural scale. We have all of us grown up in a world made better by the Bible. Hospitals, orphanages, education, this idea that every human is created in God's image and receives dignity as such, regardless of gender, regardless of age, regardless of race. All of these ideas and then the institutions that emerge from these ideas, all of these can be traced directly back to biblical teaching. There's a historian and a sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark that early in his career, he had a research interest, just a curiosity in the impact that Christianity had in the early world. So kind of first, second, third centuries. And so he studied it as a sociologist, kind of knows how to do that, knows what to do. He studied it. And as he saw the observable and the positive impact that Christianity had on the larger world, on its transforming power, he chose to become a believer. My, my guess is he would say something like this, because if Christianity can do that to the culture around it, you bet I went in. That's exactly the sort of religion that I want to line up with, not, not just because of its unity, not just because of the reliability of its transmission, true story all day long with both of those, but also because of its transforming power on the large cultural scale. But we also know this is true on an individual level as well. My youth pastor was John Alford. He's still on staff here in a different capacity now. But, but I'm so glad that when I was a sophomore in high school, he challenged me, just gave me a Bible, gave me some space and said, Tim, take this book, read it, ask it your toughest questions. And then start to see where reading this book and living in line with it leads. I'm so glad he did that. I'm so glad that he challenged that to me as a student. So let me challenge you students the Bible is a big enough book, and God is a big enough God. You can bring your toughest questions to it. Read it. Study it closely. Ask it your best questions. Follow where it leads. You'll be so glad that you did. Because nothing has been as transformative in my own life personally as coming to this book daily, again and again and again. Now for decades, I've been doing this. I love to learn and I've got way more years of education after high school under my belt than I probably would want to admit. So, so I love to study. And all of my study, all of my experience has confirmed that this book is absolutely trustworthy enough. So that way I, I say up here in front of all of you, I want to keep basing my life on this book every day until, 
till I'm no more, right? I mean, that's what I want us to say. This book is that trustworthy that we can base our lives on it. And then now that I've been in ministry for 12 years, over a decade, I've seen this book transform so many other lives as well. I've seen it give hope to marriages. I've seen it offer comfort in times of grief. I've seen it come alongside people who are going through these crazy trials over like a long period of time, decades worth of time, chronic pain. I've seen this book offer perseverance and sustain people through that sort of trial. I've seen this book renew minds as people learn more and more about who God truly is and what he wants to do in them, through them, and around them. Psalm 1 paints such a great picture of the transforming power of God's word that that I want us to experience as a church. Psalm 1 verses 2 and 3 says, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on on his law day and night. And so you bet the psalmist is basing their lives on Scripture, that they're confident in it. If they're delighting in it, if they're meditating on it, that absolutely points to confidence. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. So it's flourishing in all of the right ways. Whose leaf does not wither. So there's staying power. Whatever they do prospers. So Brookside, the greater our confidence in the Bible, the more we'll base our lives on the Bible. That's the sort of church I want us to be, where we are so confident in this book because of its unity, because of how we got it, because of its transforming power, and other reasons I didn't have time to go into today that we say as a church and as individuals, we will base our lives on this book because we know that ultimately, it won't disappoint us. So now I want to talk just about the second half of the statement that, that because of this confidence, let's base our lives on the Bible. And I just want to read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 for you one more time. Now with everything we've seen as a foundation, let's look with fresh eyes on these verses that the Apostle Paul writes. All Scripture is God-breathed. This book is unique. It's unlike any other book. It's the Word of God, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so basing our lives on this book, it means just what we read here. We let it teach us. We let it rebuke and correct us. So so that's the ouch part of this verse. But it's a good ouch because we know we need this. We need somebody who's, who's no, who, who knows better than us and who has our best interests in mind to come alongside of us when we need it and to kind of gently knock us back into the right direction where we need to be headed. We need people who love us, care about us, to rebuke us and correct us. That's what God does for us in this book. He trains us in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped, thoroughly equipped to have a really big head full of knowledge. No, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's where this book should lead. Not just so that we know some stuff, but so that we are equipped for every good work. That's what basing our lives on this book offers to every one of us here today. And it all starts with just getting into this book, reading it often, 
We want you to be reading it daily. So we talk all the time about that here as a church. Reflecting on what you read, journaling through it, and then just following where it leads, obedience in line with it. So here are just three very direct takeaways that I'll put in front of you. Two of them are very tangible. One is more long-term, but it's just as important. So takeaway one, get into a group. We all need encouragement from others to keep reading the Bible. We all need the examples of others to say, what does basing our lives on this book look like? We all need a community of others to help us unpack and digest what we're hearing on Sunday mornings and what we're reading throughout the week. Groups offer that. So this, this morning you'll hear all about groups. Get into a group. A second thing is just download the Bible app and start reading the Gospel of John. It's always the first gospel or often the first gospel we point people toward because we just want you to meet Jesus. And so download the Bible app. You can do it today before I'm done with this sermon <laughs> on your phone. Just read a chapter a day. Meet Jesus. Figure out who he is and then live in line with what you're reading. Third takeaway is just to stay in the game. Here's the long-term one. Because some of you have been reading scripture for not just weeks or months or years, but decades. And I just want to encourage you, stay in the game. Because we will never know how we'll need God's word in a, on a given day. We'll never know when we need it to take shape in the way that life sometimes takes shape. So we need God's word to speak to us daily. So, so if, that's, you've, if you've been reading God's word for a long time, you're like, man, do I want to do this again? Yes, do it again. Stay in the game. We can have all sorts of confidence in this book. This book is God's word. So Brookside, let's base our lives on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just want to thank you for giving us this book, your word, by which we know who you are, what we're doing, what, what you're doing, and how we can live in a way that honors you. So Jesus, help us have great confidence in this book, and may we be known as individuals and as a church that bases our lives on your word. Jesus, give us courage to do that. Give us a vision to do that. Give us trust to do that. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.